Man. Can you believe it is already the last session of Summit? You know, we, we can give, um, I'm so, I'm, I guess I should just say I'm so grateful really to have been here over the last uh, few days and it really has been an honor. I feel like I've gotten to know so much um, more about you and got to spend some really great time and conversations and praying together and coffees together with some of you and um, hopping into some classrooms and saying hi and answering some questions. I have loved meeting every single one of you and you've made me feel so welcome. I feel like I'm just gonna be that extended family that shows up to things now on, you know, like the cousin for free food, like I'm there. You're like, are you part of the family? Yes, I am just, you know. Where's the food, right? Uh, I, I feel like I'm a part of family here, and I want to say thank you. You have made me feel so welcome. And I want to say thank you to the Grays. What phenomenal leaders we have right here in this room who have been serving Jesus for decades and have paved a way for us to be on the receiving end of all of their wisdom. And, um, you know, we have to honor people who say yes to the call of God on their life and stay the course. Uh, because of their yes, we're sitting here in this room on the receiving end of everything that has come because of that yes. And we don't know the behind the scenes and we don't know the years of pastoring and leading and caring and shepherding and persevering. That's really a story that they know and Jesus knows, but we get to reap the benefit of it here in this room. And I believe we need more and more people like the Grays who are willing to be mom and dad to so many, a generation and help us really soar. So thank you. Thank you for Jennifer and all of the team and the worship team and everybody. This is not built on one person. This is a collective group of people coming together and serving for the greater good. And I just wanna say thank you to every single person who's been involved in Summit. So can we give a huge round of applause to the entire team. I mean, so many students and faculty. And can we give it up for you? I want to honor you. You're here. You've been leaning in. You've been opening your heart. You've been receptive to what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life. You haven't been content to just go through the motions of sitting and leaving and texting and being distracted. Man, you have leaned into what the Spirit of God would want to say to you this week. And because of that, so many of you have experienced healing and freedom and direction for your life. So thank you. I want to honor you. You're here tonight. That says something about your commitment and your passion to want to pursue everything that Jesus has for you. So we kind of started to do a clap. But can you just give yourselves a clap and just honor each other in this room? Y'all are pretty cool. And one more clap. We've been warming up to this. <laughs> Can we give it up to our Savior? Our Savior Jesus, who's been so good to us this week. He's been so good. <laughs> How many of you are athletic in this room? You say, I'm pretty athletic. All right, cool. Cool, cool, cool. Good for you. <laughs> I, uh, I've always wanted to be athletic. Um, I, 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 I like to think of myself as a very competitive person. And I, I love the idea of competing on a team. Like if you invite me to a game and, and like join the basketball team, volleyball game, whatever, I'm like all in. I have heart for days. I'm like, yes, let's crush that team. Let's do this. But sadly, 
uh, my coordination skills rarely match my enthusiasm. It's just, it's never, it's never been the thing for me. And, and I've always been aware of this. You know, growing up when it was uh, gym class, it was PE, and, and we'd do the team sports, and so the, the class would split up into two teams with team captains, you know, the peers who are pretty good at whatever that sport was, and they would go back and forth picking the people they wanted on their team. I was never first pick. I was never second pick. I don't think I was ever third pick. But it's okay. I, I, I never had high hopes. I, I knew I, I had a self-awareness. I knew that that probably wasn't going to happen for me. My goal in those moments was simply not to be last pick. Because nobody wants to be chosen last, right? I, I, th those are scary moments. And some of you know this experience. Some of you have never experienced in this life. And it's okay. I want you to lean in so you can have empathy for the rest of us in this room, right? Because there's some of us where it's just like the group gets smaller and you're still standing, you know? And, and, and it becomes like this very social, uh, social anxiety type moment for yourself. And you're going, oh, what's going to happen? Please, please, Jesus, please don't let me be last, right? There are a couple times it got really close for me. But because I, I'm a, a team player, because I have some pretty good social skills, because I had some friends who, 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 who saw me in my moment of need, I never actually got picked last. But nobody wants to be picked last. Because it's basically your peers acknowledging in front of everybody that they see that you have zero potential when it comes to what you can add to the team, right? They're not choosing you because they want you on the team. They're choosing you because they have to. I remember in middle school, I actually joined uh, my team's uh, or my school's track and field team. And, and um, yeah, anybody? Any runners in here? Yeah. All right. Well, I didn't join the team because I had Olympic aspirations. I didn't join the team because I had a natural knack for running. I joined the team because all my friends were doing it, and I give in to peer pressure pretty easily. At least I did back then. And so I showed up for practice. I got assigned to long-distance running. Ugh. The torturous things you do as a child to try to fit in, right? And, and, and so I remember having to run the mile, and, and I was like huffing and puffing the whole way. And, and, and as I would enter into the practice and then the meets, because I had never been a first pick in my life, I never thought that I was capable of first place. That seemed way beyond my ability. I never even aspired to second place. Instead, I thought about it. And I aspire to not first place, not second place, but third place. Because third place you still like placed for your team, you know? You, you were like bringing in the bronze medal, so to speak, for the team. And more importantly, if I placed third, it would mean that I wasn't last place. And so this was my mentality going into every practice, going into every race. And can I tell you that in my short-lived track career, for every single meet that I ever participated in, what did I place? Third. Third, exactly, and not a bit more of what I believed I was capable of. Now, I look back on that experience, and I don't think it's an isolated one. I actually think it's one that a lot of us can relate to because, you know, throughout life, there's moments where you're not going to get first. There's moments where, you know, you're not voted valedictorian of the class. You know, not, not everybody gets to be the first picks all the time. Not everybody gets to be voted most likely to succeed. Not everybody gets the dream girlfriend or boyfriend the first time they ask somebody out. Not, not everybody lands the dream job on the first interview. Not everybody gets into the right university the first go around. 
And, and when life continues to send the subliminal message that we aren't first picks, then after a while, we stop aspiring to first place. Now, don't get me wrong, we, we, we don't want to be last place either. We don't want last place lives. But, but we stop ex expecting first place and extraordinary because we can't all be the Steve Jobs and the Beyonce's of the world, right? You know, so, so we're just going to settle into somewhere nice and cozy in the middle. Like, we might not live great lives, but we're going to live good lives. Third place, you know. We're going to be decent human beings. We're going to pay our bills on time. We're going to show up to work. We're going to have some friendships. We're going to not have some drama. We're, we're, we're going to, if we have extra time served in the community, you know, we're going to, we're going to make some sort of impact the way that, that we think we can with the time that we have. You know, we're, we're going to live good lives. Sure, sure. It's, it's, it's something that books are written about. It's, it's something extraordinary, but it still places. And I guess with that kind of thinking, I mean, in one sense, we're, we're not wrong. I mean, our world could certainly use more decency and less illegal activity and less drama, you know, and more good behavior. Third place is pretty good. But go with me for a minute. What if? What if we're wrong? What if we have been picked? What if we have been chosen? but we simply don't know it? What if we have been singled out for greatness? We just never heard the call. How tragic our lives would be if we lived them with the mentality of third place when in fact we had been first pick chosen. In Jesus' day, there was a group of men who were living under the horribly inaccurate assumption that they weren't first picks. They're a group of fishermen, Jewish fishermen, and in, in Jesus' time, it was a, a good living, but it was nothing exceptional. It was a family business, it was a family trade. Your dad was a fisherman, his dad was a fisherman, his dad was a fisherman. It was manual labor, it's kind of smelly, it's not glamorous work, but it's dependable work. And of course, if you wanted to, you could kind of pivot your career and, and you could try to dabble in something new. But if you were a conquered people living under the great Roman Empire, you didn't do that. You just put your head down, you did your work, and you didn't make waves. The only exception would be in the Jewish community at that time that at a young age, if you showed superior aptitude to understanding spiritual principles, if, if you, you showed some sort of superior moral compass, if you had this exceptional ability to understand scripture, well then you were handpicked from your community by the local rabbis and scholars and you got to enter into training for the most prestigious role in the Jewish community at the time to train people and instruct people in the ways of God. But for these Jewish fishermen, their time came when they could have been picked. And they weren't. No one saw anything special about them. So they went on to do what was always expected of them, fish. They're fishermen. Nothing really wrong with what they were doing except they were living under a lie about themselves. They thought their lives were meant to be ordinary. Meanwhile, great potential lay dormant within them. They were capable of so much more, but because nobody ever called it out of them, they continued life as usual. 
Until one day, one day Jesus shows up at the Sea of Galilee and he disrupts not just their fishing, but really everything about their lives. And this is where their story really begins to take shape in Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. Reads this, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. Some translations say, I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus, son of God, everlasting light that dispels the power of darkness. The Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one who heals the sick and casts out demons and raises the dead to life and walks on water, the miracle maker himself, the resurrection power that would not let death hold him down, the one who would be the ultimate sacrifice for the redemption of mankind, the rabbi of all rabbis shows up on the scene and invites them to join the team. Think about this. They had to have been baffled, confused. Have you ever been in a room and it's pretty crowded and you see your crush in the distance? You know, you know. And they look at you and they smile and they wave hi. And they start to walk towards you. And their heart's beating. And you're starting to get a smile on your face. And you're going, this is my moment. Jesus has been answering my prayers. I knew you were the one, right? Like it's happening. And so you start to wave back. And then you hear in the distance somebody else saying hello over you. And you turn. What did you do? You got to recover quick, you know? The stretch, <laughs> right? And you run away, you know? I almost imagine that for these disciples, it must have been one of those like, are you sure you're talking to me moments, right? <laughs> Looking behind, make sure there's not somebody else more qualified, more capable. Like, you're talking to me, Jesus? And even though they had no idea how radically their lives would change by accepting this call. Had no idea how much they would be a part of not just changing history, but eternity. They did the only thing that makes sense when the greatest one of all calls you to greatness, you drop everything and join the team. And maybe that's why some of us are still holding on to things that we should be dropping. Because we're still waiting for our moment with Jesus by the sea. We keep holding on to our hurt or our pride or our compromises or our doubts or our insecurities or our fears, our agendas, our own ambitions. We keep holding on to all these things because these are the things that we've needed to make sense of our situation, to make the most of our life. These are the things 
that we've needed to get on in this world. These are the things that have gotten us to third place. And we'll keep holding on to these things until we have a good enough reason to drop them. And we fail to understand that the very same things that are placing us, us at third are the same things that are keeping us from first place living. But one moment with Jesus, one clear understanding that he's calling, and everything can change. Now, reality check. Because some of you are like, girl, you're getting real passionate right now, but uh, that happened a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, I know. This has been over 2,000 years, and uh, we are not at the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus is not physically in the flesh right now, walking on the stage. But what if Jesus is still in the business of calling? And what if he's calling you? What if he's calling you right where you are? In your community, in your family, at this university, in your classes, on your team, in your zip code, in this nation, in this time. What if he's not calling tomorrow or the day after that? What if he's calling now? Not when you've got more things figured out. Not when you're adulting better in life. Not when you've taken a few more classes so you can say a few more terms. Not when you've gone to more church services. Not when you've learned a little bit more of the Christian lingo. Not when you've cleaned up your Instagram. But now. What if he's calling now? And what if by answering the call to truly wholeheartedly follow him, it meant that everything in your life would change? It would mean that you would actually leave a mark on this world in ways that you can never comprehend. What would you be willing to drop? Everything? Yeah. Me too. I have good news. Jesus is calling. He's calling every single one of us to follow him more closely than ever before. To become people we never thought we were capable of becoming. To leave our mark on this world in ways beyond our wildest dreams. I'm about to read words that Jesus spoke to his disciples over 2,000 years ago that have been intentionally recorded in scripture by the Spirit of God for us as well, right in this room, right now in this place. This is Jesus' words to us in John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is great news. It means we've been chosen. <laughs> we've been picked. And we're not last picks either. We're not fourth picks or third picks. We are first pick chosen. And some of us need to hear this because we're at a place in our faith and in our life where we're struggling. We're wrestling to make sense of our season. We've gone through some things. We've experienced some things. We're questioning some things. And we're trying to differentiate the difference between religion and relationship and what is tradition and what is real and what is God really about who is he and who am I? And you feel like you're inching your way 
towards God. But friend, what you have to know is way before you were inching your way towards God, God was already running towards you. You're chosen. You're chosen. You've been knit together uniquely in your mother's womb. You've been plucked out of eternity and placed here and now for such a time as this. There's nothing accidental about you. There's nothing mediocre about you. You are not average. You are not second rate. You are not last place. You have been first pick chosen. And when you get a revelation of how chosen you have been by Jesus, well, it's like a light bulb goes on inside of you and suddenly the places that were dark and confusing are, are, are lit up by the power of God. You're chosen. You've been chosen. Chosen to bear fruit that lasts. To be clear here, Jesus is not talking about accruing a ton of money or wealth or power or fame. Not about getting to a place where you have a to-be-envied career or picture-perfect relationship or a always selfie-ready image. At times, yeah, these pursuits, they're enticing, but they lack any real substance. They can never satisfy. They can never bring fulfillment and meaning to our lives. The fruit that Jesus speaks of here is fruit not of this world. It's the fruit of the work of the Spirit of God in our lives. It's in how, through the way that we pursue Jesus and the work that he does within us, we reveal the character and power of Jesus to those around us. It's seen in the lives of other people who are experiencing the goodness of God because we chose to say yes to Jesus' calling of a life of mission over mediocrity. This is the kind of fruit that lasts. Jesus said, go and bear fruit, implying that to live chosen means we are going to do something. Mission requires movement. In fact, Jesus emphasizes this with the Great Commission when this echo of go is heard time and time again. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father and in the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Go and make disciples. Go. Go and share the love of Jesus. Go to the people that are hurting and lost and confused and in despair and go and be the hands and feet of Jesus the way that you love and the way that you serve. Go and pray for those who are hurting and lost. Go and not just tell people about what Jesus has done in your life, but actually walk beside them and help them as they discover what it means to follow him. Go. Go. Listen, it's great what's been happening within these walls. But what God has been doing here this week cannot stay here. Go! Despite what our modern evangelical world has sometimes taught us or sent the message about, pastors and preachers are not the only ones with the mandate to go and make disciples. It's our mission. It's your mission. Go. Live chosen. For every single one of us, that's going to look different because we have different passions and giftings and opportunities and relationships. It'll be contextualized for our season and the leading of the Holy Spirit and where Jesus has us in the season that he has us in. But for every one of us, there are opportunities right here, right now to live chosen, to live a life on mission, to make a mark in this world for Jesus, to see people experience 
the same radical salvation and love that we have. Go. But how do we do this? How do we actually live chosen? Well, there's a number of things that we could talk about tonight, but I, I do want to leave us with just a couple thoughts on what it could look like for us to embrace being chosen and begin to live with intention and live on mission. You know, first, when I think about living chosen, well, it's pretty clear that to live chosen means that we don't just consume, but we contribute. Listen, we live in a consumer-driven society. Can we just go there for a second? We do. There's no way of avoiding that. And it's not all bad, by the way. I mean, it certainly caused a lot of advancements in technology and innovation. And there's been more than a handful of people who've made a fast buck on a really great idea. But there is a dark side to consumerism in our culture today. It breeds corruption and greed and selfishness and injustice. And if we're not careful, we will let a spirit of consumerism shape our faith. And we'll dumb down our faith to a mere product. And we'll downgrade our worship gatherings to merely entertainment. And we will degrade our relationship with God to something that is merely transactional. Now, there can be wrong. In one sense, following Jesus means that every single day we are consuming. We're consuming of his goodness. Every day we wake up and his mercies are new. Every day we wake up and his grace is sufficient for us. Every day when we ask for wisdom, God gives it generously without finding fault. Every day we can pray, give us our daily bread and know that God is our provider. Every day in our moments of need, we can lean on the power of the Holy Spirit. Every single day, we can have Jesus as our perfect peace and our hope in which we build our lives. In one sense, following Jesus means that we're continually on the receiving end of his goodness and his grace and his mercy and his love and his power. And yet, the call is simply not to consume of the goodness of God, but to give it away. To be a, a, a river of life, so to speak, and not a reservoir of God's blessing. In Matthew, there's an incredible miracle that Jesus does. He takes a, a few fish and loaves and he multiplies them to feed thousands. We're familiar with the story. What's interesting about this story is that the miracle actually begins when Jesus says to the disciples, seeing the thousands and having very little, an impossible situation, they cannot feed this crowd. Jesus says to them, no, I'm not going to send them away because they're hungry. You, you feed them. You do something. And it's in the moment that the disciples bring their little to Jesus. I'm paraphrasing, but it's like, here, we found a sack lunch, Jesus. <laughs> I don't know what you can do with that. But it's the moment that they realize they did have something to bring that the miracle began. And your gift in the season might seem little in comparison to the need of this world, the need of your family, the need of your friends. But I promise you that when you bring what you can bring to the table, when you bring your, your talent or your ability or your energy or your listening ear or your helping hand, when you bring what you can to the table and you place it in the masterful hands of Jesus, it can feed thousands. 
Our world needs people who are willing to bring what they have to Jesus. Because our world is desperate for salvation. Our world is crying out for hope. I mean, you turn on the news and the racial tensions and the injustice taking place and the violence in schools and the sexual abuse scandals that keep popping up. I mean, this is, this is the stuff we read every day. But we don't need to read newspapers to know that our world is hurting. It's in our own families. It's in our own neighborhoods. It's in our own dorms. And we simply cannot let a spirit of consumerism keep us from being a conduit of blessing to this world that the world desperately needs. It's like the movie Titanic. Go with me for a second. How many of you have seen the movie Titanic? It's pretty old now. It's like over 20 years old. It's a scary thought, right? And it stars young Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet, a.k.a. Jack and Rose. And it's a classic love story, timeless uh, a tale of, you know, a, a boy meets girl. They fall in love on a cruise ship, and then they hit an iceberg, and everything goes south, you know? And um, spoiler alert, if, if, you, if you don't know anything about Titanic, um, it does sink. Yeah, that's, that's actually what happens. And there's one point in the movie where Jack and Rose... And Jack, being the valiant hero, he's trying to keep her safe. They're trying to stay alive in the midst of this, this boat. The Titanic is sinking the ship. And, and, and they're trying to get to safety. But there's freezing cold waters as the ship is sinking. And so everybody's just trying to get on, on these rafts. Or they're trying to get on some sort of debris that is happening. Some sort of peace from the ship so that they can be out of the water for a second while they're waiting for the rescue boats to come. And if you stay in the water for like more than a couple minutes, you're going to be dead because it's so cold. You will freeze to death. And so as the ship is sinking, they, they somehow are able to survive that. And now they're swimming in the icy, cold, freezing waters. And Jack sees this big, emphasize big wooden door. And he says, that's it, babe. And so he takes Rose and he gets her on top of this wooden door. And she's floating now. She's out of the water. And then Jack tries to join her only once. Only once he tries to join her. And then it doesn't work. And so then he stays in the water with her. And he holds her hand and he starts reassuring her that she's going to live a long life. And that everything's going to be okay. And, and some of you know what's going to happen next. But this is where the next scene takes place. And, and we see the fate of Jack and Rose. Let's take a look. Jack. Jack! 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 There's a boy, Jack! Jack! Thank you. 
So romantic, right? Romantic. Okay, listen, I, I hate to be the voice of reason or the romantic cynic in the room, but seriously, Rose, you are the worst, okay? I don't know if you could see how big that door was. They both could have fit. They both could have survived. She let her boot die in that water. She killed Leo. Worse, she killed young Leo. I'll never let you go. Girl, we saw you do it. You just, you let him go. We just watched you let him go. The worst. They could have both lived. I look back on this movie sometimes. I think about it every now and then, and I get angry all over again because I'm like, I did have to go down that way. But I think about this movie, and I think sometimes that it's a little bit of a haunting reminder to the church. Because I think... At times, we can have more in common with Rose than we'd like to admit. Because here we are, and we have been rescued from the freezing cold waters of sin and death and destruction. We are living in grace and redemption and salvation. And yet all around us are people who are hurting, who are broken, who are completely separate from the love of God, who are dead in their sin. And instead of actually making room and pulling as many as we can to safety and deliverance and freedom and salvation, instead, we say empty words like Rose, I'll never let you go. Oh, bless your heart. Oh, that's so tragic. Ooh, I will send up a prayer for you. You know, I'm going to make a hashtag and I'm going to post about it so you know I care. Come on. We can do better than that as the church. I pray that we would be a generation that sees the people around us. And we respond with the gospel in love and truth. And we make room for as many as possible. That we always have our doors open as the church. That we're always on the lookout for somebody who is in need and saying, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me serve you. Let me help you. Let me come alongside you. I'm believing for you. But I want you to know that there's a God who sees you. You might think nobody sees you, but there's a God who sees you. You might think that your life is beyond repair, but I know a God who can rescue you and redeem you. And I'm willing to do whatever it takes. I'm willing to to not just consume by myself on my own little safety net, but I'm willing to extend the reach. I'm willing to say, come, come join me and experience what I've experienced in Jesus. We're called not just to consume, but to contribute. And it's interesting when Jesus called the disciples, he said, come follow me and I will make you fishers 
of men. I will teach you how to fish for people. Now, the metaphor, it's a clear one. It's, it's, it's brilliant. It spoke directly to the disciples, and it's something that they would have easily grasped because before their moment with Jesus, their life had been all about fishing. It was all about the task. It was all about the what. But now Jesus is saying, come follow me. And the call to live chosen means that it's no longer primarily going to be about the what as much as it's going to be about the who. It's not going to be about your 10-year career plan. It's going to be about who you can serve and love along the way. And I think to live chosen, <laughs> we have to recognize that truth in the calling. To live chosen means that we make our life more about the people that we can reach and the way that we can love and serve like Jesus and what we can learn from each other than checking everything off of our to-do list. Listen, I, I love that you're in a season of your life where you're pursuing a career and a dream in your life. And I hope you go wholeheartedly towards it. I hope you excel in every class. I hope, I hope that you get that job that you want. I hope that you affect culture through that job. I hope you make an impact. But I hope that you never lose sight of the fact that the greatest mark you'll leave in this world is not a position or a title or a paycheck, but it's about the way that you love people the way that you see people, the way that you model Christ to people. I look back on different seasons of my life, and I definitely was, I'm, I'm, I'm a very goal-driven person. It was always for me about achieving goals, goals, goals. That's like my love language. <laughs> I'm still a driven person. But man, God has taught me along the way. It's not so much about what you want to achieve as much as seeing the person next to you and being available and being inconvenienced and being uncomfortable to make sure they know that they're loved by God. And there are opportunities in your life right now to begin to see people and serve and love and give and live chosen in the way that you respond and see those around you. And finally, very quickly, I believe that to live chosen means that we make the most of opportunities to do good that are right in front of us. And here's what I've found in life. God's never going to ask us for what we don't have, but he most certainly will ask us to use what we do have. God specializes in using what seems ordinary in our lives to bring about the extraordinary. I mean, God used Moses' staff to part the Red Sea. God used David's slingshot to bring down the giant Goliath. God used Daniel and his friend's diet to bring them favor before the king. Jesus used a sack lunch to feed thousands. Jesus put mud in a guy's eye and it caused him to see. Jesus' simple touch healed lepers. God specializes in using what seems ordinary to bring about the extraordinary. And I want to reassure you tonight that in whatever season you're in, and whatever the circumstances are around you, the good, the bad, the frustrating, the easy, the difficult, all of it, God sees all the necessary ingredients for miracles. But sadly, we just don't often see what Jesus sees. Instead, we focus on what we don't have. We, we underestimate the power of what we do have, and we overestimate the power of what we don't have. So we find ourselves saying, well, yeah, I would excel more in that class if I had a different professor, or I would do so much better at work if it was a different kind of environment, or I would serve more if I had more time, or I'd give more if I had more money, or, you know, I would, I would, I, I would contribute a little bit more if I had different experience. And I, I would be further along if I had grown up in a different home. We, we keep saying these things. And... And hear me, I understand that for everybody in this room, probably our situation is less than ideal in some area of our lives. But what would happen 
if we began to focus instead of what we didn't have on what we did have? What if we began to use what was in front of us? I wonder what you have right now. I wonder what time you have. I wonder what talents you have. I wonder what passions you have. I wonder what experiences you have. I, I wonder what story you have to share. I, I, I wonder what discipline you have. I wonder if simply you could be a listening ear for somebody in your world. I, I wonder if you could start being vocal about what God's done in your life because when you share the things that you're not willing to share right now, but if you're able to embrace your story of redemption and share, I promise you there's somebody else who's going, I am in that situation and it's your story that is reminding me that freedom is possible for me as well. What do you have? If you use it, God will bless it. If you use it, if you use it, the impossible can become possible. But it begins with using what we have. And I pray at the end of this time that we've had together that you leave Summit with this deeper revelation of how loved you are. That you're a child of God. I pray that you leave this time that we have together completely committed to the freedom that Jesus has for you. And you would continue to find your hope in him. I pray that you would leave here and you wouldn't go, wow, that was a cool experience way back when. But you'd see it at the beginning of something so much more. That tomorrow when this isn't here, you would wake up and you would sense the presence of God. And you would pray believing he would speak to you. And you would open the Bible and believe he has something to say. I pray that you would continue to leave this place with this sense of who you are and you'd no longer let shame or words spoken and hurt define you, but you'd continue to renew your mind to who you truly are. And I pray that in the places that you need to forgive, that you would not get trapped in bitterness, but you'd be willing to lay down what you need to lay down in exchange for all that Jesus has for you. And I also pray that everything that God has done in this space would become a ripple effect in other people's lives because you choose to live chosen. That you know you have something to give to this world that you know you have something to give to the person next to you, that you know that you are a minister of the gospel wherever you go, and that God brings opportunities in your path every single day to see his kingdom come and his will be done. Let me pray for you in this place. Jesus, I thank you for what you've done this week. I thank you that we are chosen. We're loved and we're chosen, God. That you set us apart for your kingdom work. That none of us in this room are average or second best. We're chosen. And I pray that we would live in the reality every single day that you've chosen us. It's not something we could earn. We don't hustle to make the team. You've chosen us out of your grace and out of your mercy. I pray that we would live chosen. 
I pray that because we say yes to the call to follow you, the call to follow you more deeply and more personally than ever before, that other people experience your salvation. <laughs> that as we share our story, we share our time, as we give, as we contribute, as we problem solve, as we, we use what you've given us, God, that you would take what we bring to the table and you would work miracles. Miracles. Spark something this year at this university that cannot be contained. That we would walk day in and day out as your children and as ministers of the good news. We love you, Jesus. We give you everything we have here tonight. Because you've given so much. You've given everything for us. You know, before we end our time here tonight, I'm going to invite Becky up. And uh, she's going to lead us in a moment. But I think it's perfect. Because here we are and we've had this whole week and we've had this whole experience and for some of us, this deep revelation, even tonight, that we are chosen and that God has actually called us to do good and to be bearers and witnesses of the gospel. And now is the time for us to reflect to do something. And so in the next few minutes, we're going to have our opportunity to commit to something beyond this time together. And it's really between us and God. But to say, this is how I'm going to live chosen. This is what I'm going to be doing beyond the time at Summit. So Summit isn't just a one-off experience, but it's the beginning of something great in my life. So I'm going to let Becky explain more, but I'm excited about this moment, and I pray that you lean in and listen to the Holy Spirit in the next few moments that we have together before we worship. Yeah, guys, God's been doing amazing things here, here and here, um, and a lot of us. I've heard a lot of things from you guys, I know personally. Um, and the best thing is that it doesn't stop now. It doesn't stop now. It doesn't stop when we leave this building. Um, it doesn't ever stop. And so we have an opportunity to um, proclaim what God's been doing in our lives to one another, to your friends, um, to your chaplain, because that brings him glory. He gets glory through our proclaiming of what he's doing in our lives. So up in the front here, you guys will see there are some cards, pens, and baskets. Um, they're commitment cards. And it says on the front, the Holy Spirit has been nudging me about. And this semester, I commit to. And these are for you to reflect on um, and then put in your hall basket so that your chaplain can be praying over them. If you choose, the back side has a spot for contact information, your name and email. Um, either way, your chaplains are going to be praying for you, praying for what you've committed to. Um, and they would love to be in contact with you about how they can support you. Um, so we are going to step back into a time of worship, and please feel free to come forward 